0: Welcome to another episode of Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library on the campus of Wayne State University in the heart of Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, your host, along with the tired hands of Troy Eller-English. Now, she was explaining earlier to me why her hands are tired. What you been doing, Troy?
1: Uh, I've been scraping off a ridiculous amount of glue off of our hardwood floor because our previous owners were jerks. (laughs)
0: Not jerks. No, they were. No, they were? Okay, fine. They... So you've been doing housing stuff for your days off. If
1: you, if you had spent three days hand scraping your floors.
0: You would be in pain as well, folks. <laughs> it is no fun. And what added to it? Different types of glue, right?
1: Oh, So many different types of glue. So
0: you really couldn't do it like one good swoop.
1: No. No,
0: of course not. Hence why they are jerks.
1: Gotten very, very good at perfecting my technique oh. for different kinds of glue.
0: <gasps> I didn't know you needed techniques for different types of glue.
1: <laughs> As it turns out, you do. <laughs>
0: now we know. <laughs> Don't worry, folks, this is, episode is not all about Troy scraping glue, and we will not be talking about glue. But this episode, we're going to be talking about housing. Now, during the 1930s, the federal government created the Federal Housing Administration, which essentially was created to help people buy a house during the Great Depression, and it worked very well. Over the years, millions were able to buy homes and live that American dream. It works so well, even to this day, it's still working. But the horrible part is that it was created to exclude African Americans from the program. The FHA created redlining. And for new development communities... There had to be mandates to have racial covenants. Developers were too, went to such extremes that here in Detroit, a developer wanted to get that FHA loan. But the federal government said that a black community was too close to where he wanted to build new houses. So what did he do? He built a wall, a six-foot wall, that went the length of the community. And what did the developer get? He got the loans to create it. This wall stands still today in Detroit, but now is covered in murals about peace and racial harmony. But for over 70 years, it was a sign of housing discrimination and racial discrimination. Levittown, Chicago, all over the country, this was happening. Keeping blacks out of certain neighborhoods was a local and federal mandate for decades. Now, this leads us to our interview with Emma Monier. Emma is a PhD candidate in NYU's history program. Her work focuses on the intersection of urban history and LGBT studies in 20th century United States. She is a graduate from the University of Michigan with a BA in women's and gender studies and political science. And she wrote an article about her hometown of Gross Point, Michigan, a neighborhood adjacent to Detroit. And her article is called A Most Conscientious and Considerate Method. Residential Segregation and Integrationists Activism in Gross Point, Michigan 1960 to 1970 in the Journal of Urban History in January 2022. Her article unearths a meticulous system of residential segregation in Grosse Pointe, Michigan, from 1945 to 1960. Potential homebuyers were ranked based upon their ethnicity, accent, manner of dress, and, of course, the color of their skin. As such, the point system measured and indeed vested real estate brokers with the power to construct suburban whiteness. This article tracks its demise from well publicized state and federal hearings and the community's response to the first black families to move into the Grosse Pointe area. This is another story that helps us understand this horrible system of housing discrimination in this country. So sit back, and once you've listened to this podcast, please try to find this article in the Journal of Urban History by Emma Manier. <laughs> Emma, welcome to Tales for the Ruthod Library. How you doing?
2: I'm good. How are you? I'm happy to be here.
0: We're glad to have you. You are our first podcast in person person even though we're in masks yes and we're socially distanced but you're the first person so that's a huge honor
2: yeah no i'm i'm happy that whatever kind of normal this is is, is resuming so <laughs>
0: yeah we'll put a plaque up saying that you were the first yeah i expect think. a plaque yeah mm-hmm. all right so your article grabbed my attention is excellent um and for those who don't live in detroit Mm-hmm. Okay, you talk about a neighborhood area called Gross Point. Now, anybody mm-hmm. who doesn't grow up here doesn't know it. They they've watched the movie
2: mm-hmm. Gross
0: Point Blank. They've read the book Middlesex, which is a great book. People. Mm-hmm. So, can you describe the enclave of Gross Points and how does it fit into what you called bourgeois utopias? Which I love that statement.
2: Yes. Well, I wish it was mine, but unfortunately, it's not. That term belongs to the historian Robert Fishman. Uh, who is looking at 18th century London suburbs. Um, So he's kind of writing about what or rather how suburbs are defined by exclusion. So whether that's in terms of industry or most types of commerce or excluding lower class residents. And here in the US, I would say that's also um, relevant to race as it is in the UK now. Um, but so that's his term, but I do think Gross Point is quite emblematic of that. So Gross Point was founded as a series of villages, um, mainly in the late 1880s through the early 1900s, and later incorporated as a city. Um, I'm going to be using the term Gross Point to refer to all five points. So it's made up of five smaller townships, the city, so Gross Point City, Gross Point Farms, the park, the shores, and the woods, and again, I'll just use Gross Point kind of collectively Absolutely. throughout. All yeah, um, and so it is a it is it covers only about ten square miles um, outside of Detroit. Um, it's long been kind of inhabited by auto executives and car money, like not surprisingly, given its relationship to the city. Um, And it's home to about 50,000 people. So it's not not too big. Um, It's bordered by Detroit on the south and west sides, um, a lake, so there's lakefront property on the east, and then more middle-class, working-class suburbs on the north. Um, I just looked up the median home listing price today um, is $357,000. Obviously, it's a weird time to be looking at housing prices, uh, but that gives you kind of a sense of, of, again, and that's just the median, but who's living there, although there is certainly some socioeconomic diversity that I don't want to neglect, Um, but I would say Certainly in Metro Detroit and kind of the popular consciousness, it's known as an exclusive suburb, um, primarily white, which I will talk a lot about, um, kind of home to old money, really beautiful homes, um, lush lawns, et cetera. So a very um, emblematic, stereotypical um, suburb, I would say, in a lot of ways, if that paints an adequate picture. It
0: does. Absolutely. It cool. is... Um, a suburb of Detroit that you could definitely see the
2: divide line.
0: For sure. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now now we're talking about now we know about redlining, we know about all the government issues that were happening with housing throughout the, the 30s, 40s, 50s, mm-hmm. on well, up to the current day even. But Gross Point had something a little different. Yes. And of course they had what I call it the point system. Mm-hmm. So what, what did it entail what was entailed with this? Yeah.
2: So Gross Point like Detroit was redlined. So that system certainly existed in the 1930s and 40s um, as a result of the homeowners loan corporation. Um, and if you look at that map, it's actually quite interesting because Gross Point is one of the few areas graded with A's and Bs, which are the highest ranked. And it's kind of surrounded by a sea of C's and D's in Detroit and elsewhere. So that kind of template of redlining still existed in Gross Point. But the points system, as you mentioned, um, is kind of a separate additional system that was instituted in 1945 uh, by the Gross Point Property Owners Association and the Gross Point Brokers Association. So it's kind of its own separate deal that operated similar to redlining, but differently. So um, what happened was if someone was interested in buying a home in Gross Point, and they seemed like maybe they didn't quite meet quote unquote community standards. A realtor would hire a private detective who would then look into um, that person's uh, family history, their employment history, et cetera. And the idea was that a perfect score was 100 points. If you were Polish, you needed 50 to 55 points to qualify. If you were Irish, 55. Italians Greeks Spanish and Lebanese needed 75 and here I'm using terms of the time that I would not use myself today. Absolutely, of
0: course
2: and uh, Jewish people needed 85 points and they also had a separate blue form that they filled out for Jewish homeowners So that's kind of the idea. And so how did people get to this 50 75 however many points were required? Um, so the Realtors and the private detectives ranked people based on Americanness first so that had to do with descent, nativity, whether or not their names were quote unquote, typically American, uh, whether their way of living was American. And obviously this is subjective, right? Like there are certain things that defined that in 1950, let's say, that certainly wouldn't qualify now. Um, So in addition to that, they were also graded on their accent and how pronounced it was, if any, uh, their grammar. So here they're obviously coding for education in some ways. Uh, their manner of dress uh, whether or not the head of household in most cases or all cases probably um, the husband's job how that was held in esteem um, they were explicitly graded on the husband and wife's degree of education and also their family structure so um, let's say if uh if the wife's mother was living in the home she would also be evaluated Um, and so this was relevant. Obviously, the groups I listed are um, what were called white ethnics at the time. So today, we don't really like, identify people racially as Irish, Italian, Greek, etc. Um, it's just white. But this was really kind of a moment of race-making mm-hmm. uh, in American history. So I kind of argue that the point system was a way for white ethnics to gain access to whiteness Ooh. vis-a-vis homeownership
0: of course. Yeah.
2: Um, and, uh, and importantly here, um, so I did not mention, um, black homeowners or Asian homeowners who were explicitly, um, excluded. So there was no way for them to be admitted to buy a home in gross point. Um, so that's kind of how the ranking system worked. Right. It did have some teeth. Um, so if realtors, um, did sell to someone who didn't meet their standards, they would lose their commission and risk expulsion. Hmm. Um, if someone didn't qualify, if a homeowner didn't qualify, their name would be circulated among realtors locally so that they knew not to sell to them. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's kind of how it worked. Um, so I would say it is... Uh, in a like, it is beyond redlining. It is more precise. Uh, it is a way to tailor to specific community standards, um, in a way that's kind of more discerning and more discriminatory than redlining.
0: Yes, it is absolutely It's, mm-hmm. it's shocking. Um, but how was it discovered? How did this come up to light?
2: Yeah. So um, basically, it, it was kind of uh, it was hard to track down in the archives how this was discovered, but. Um, a man who lived on Woodmill Point Drive, which for non-Metro uh, Detroit residents is lakefront property, so um, big fancy homes, um, filed a civil suit against the property owners and brokers association. Uh, he accused them of trying to devalue his home and wanted to back out of participating in the point system. Um, and this was a civil suit. I didn't, get, didn't see much press coverage of it, but then what really brought it to light Um, was that the Anti-Defamation League um, of Detroit kind of latched onto it and brought it to the press's attention. So kind of quickly after that, after they're writing about it in their newsletters, they're publishing op-eds about it, Uh shortly thereafter, the state attorney general um, orders public hearings on the matter in May 1960. And that's kind of really what brings it to public attention. Um, the state attorney general um, called it out, as did the governor. So there's a lot of kind of negative publicity attention directed in Gross Point's way um, in 1960. Um, then it's kind of a very uh, uh, winding administrative road, <laughs> if you will. Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: And the state attorney general tried to pass an administrative law to outlaw this or practices anywhere in the state that were similar to it. That was eventually overturned, um, but as far as I can tell, it did actually formally—excuse me—formally stop operating in 1960. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's how it came to light. So really, as a result of kind of local pressure and activism escalating to the state level.
0: Real quick, what was the initial response from Gross Point residents yeah. about the discovery of the point system? Were they shocked, or were they more like? Well, this is preserving our, Mm -hmm. the usual thing, preserving our housing market.
2: For sure. Yeah, I think there was evidence of both. Um, So in like letters to the editor during this time, uh, some residents said, hey, I did not know about this. I am offended. I'm not pleased. We should hold ourselves to higher standards. Other folks wrote in and said, this is preserving our community values like this gives us the caliber, the degree of, of neighbors that we come to expect in this area. So it really was quite split.
0: Oh, my gosh. So also yeah. what happened out of, out of this response was the integration of Gross Points, but led by a community called the Gross Point Human Relations Council. Mm-hmm. What were some of their goals, and did they succeed at all? What was what, to bring kind of like a dignity to the points?
2: Yeah, so they used a lot of kind of evasive sort of soft language um, that was very characteristic of similar I would say, mainly white liberal groups at the time. So according to their statement of purpose, their goal was to, quote, make our community a place where men of all races have equal opportunity in education, housing, employment, and total community life. Um, And in some, I would say they didn't really succeed. Um, But they did try, Mm -hmm. um, which I found quite heartening, I have to say. Um, And so they had about... ranged from 300 to 500 members, of course that's members and not like active participants. Um, And they were very um, committed to the idea that uh, uh, mixed race contact alone could bring about racial harmony. So they did a lot of exchange programs at preschools, at churches, at summer camps, um, with the idea that if in this case, white and black children intermingled, racial harmony would result which I think to us today seems kind of naive. Right. Um, but I would say it you know, fits with the ethos of the times, if we think back to the early civil rights movement. Um, so they also hosted interracial dinner parties. They would escort uh, potential homeowners of color to um, home viewings. So I do think that kind of interpersonal support is really where they did succeed. Um, when two, so the first two black families to move into Gross Point did so. In 1966 Um, they both stayed there for a very short period of time uh, and there was outrage in response to the first uh, black homeowner Um, but the other homeowner glenn brown excuse me he leased his home i should say Um, so perhaps that had some played a factor in the lack of reaction to his move Mm -hmm. but in any case he did get involved uh, with the hrc Um, and it sounds like from what i can tell and kind of a goodbye letter he wrote to the organization um, that he found a lot of community and support there and was very happy with his time in Gross Point. So I do think they succeeded in kind of creating those bonds at least sometimes and ushering in um, the first at least two or three black families in Gross Point.
0: Why, why, why did the uh, first two families leave Gross Point?
2: Uh, both heads of household worked for the Economic Development administration of the Department of Commerce, which shortly after they moved to Gross Point was relocated to California, I believe. Um, so they didn't both end up moving to California, but uh, yeah, it was an economic situation. Okay,
0: so it wasn't the people showing up, yelling, honking horns, doing all sorts of things like that?
2: Um, I mean, no, not, not explicitly, but uh, I could imagine if I lived somewhere and that happened to me, I would not feel incredibly comfortable. <laughs> so <laughs> no one was advertising that, but... Um, But that did that did occur. Right. So in addition to kind of these interpersonal victories in which the HRC is creating like meaningful relationships with black families, I think one thing a lot of people from Gross Point also know about is Martin Luther King's uh, 1968 speech at Gross Point South High School. So they also recruited him to do that. So they're a big reason uh, why that speech occurred. And I think it sort of lives on in gross point suburban lore, Um, but I would say that that's a pretty big victory too. And in that speech, he talked a lot about um, the creation of two cities, which might sound familiar to folks who know of the Kerner Report and the Kerner Commission in 1968, but this is in the wake of the Detroit Rebellion. Um, And he's talking broadly about um, kind of suburban and urban divides and what that means. And, um, you know, although he didn't say gross point this is your fault, you know. Um, I do think it, it really resonated with the legacy of the Point system, um, given that that speech was 1968, only eight years later. So.
0: Excellent, that's right. What was the, um, after all, after the 60s, after the 70s, 80s, 90s, what was Gross Point like? What was the integration like for Gross Point?
2: Yeah, so um, in 2000, um, so this is 40 years after the Point system is out of commission, Gross points, the gross points collectively were still 97% white. Um, In 2010, it was 93% white. And I'm sure that number is lower now. Um, Mm -hmm. And it it does seem to be more diverse than I recall growing up in the early 2000s. Um, But clearly, and this is kind of the problem, the real deep problem with redlining, I think, um, and the point system more particularly, is that. Although these systems might not be utilized, their legacy lives on in really deep, hard to calculate ways, whether that's in terms of reputation and perhaps knowing that there aren't many black families in Grosse Pointe. So if I'm a black family, perhaps I wouldn't wanna move there. Um, so there are there are these kind of intangible ways that this reputation lives on despite the lack of enforcement. Um, so, so yeah, it, it certainly has become more diverse, but I don't think it's a coincidence that there was a point system and 40 years later, the community remained 97% right. white.
0: So now that you grew up in a gross point,
2: mm-hmm.
0: now, now that you've done your historical research, now that you've looked at things in a different lens, hmm. how, how, how do you look at your neighborhood now?
2: I would say I don't actually look at it that differently. Okay. Um, and I think that's because even as a kid, um, I grew up houses away from Detroit on the MAC border. My grandparents lived on Barrington, which is uh, like the opposite side of Alter. It was very apparent to me, even as a kid, that something was up, that there was, it was not a coincidence that my community was so white and just across the street was an 85% black city. Um, and so, although I didn't have the language to talk about it or this specific historical research, Um, although I do remember people like know the point system existed they don't really know what that means I mean from my experience at least um, they don't know the historical specifics but it is kind of a suburban legend of sorts Um, and so I think it just gave me kind of a structural historical understanding of those things that I sensed even as a kid Um, which I think is important to note like just because we don't have the whole context doesn't mean we can't feel the repercussions um so that's one thing but on the other hand i will say like knowing that there were people doing some good work in the 60s as as i know and i'm sure there are today um is heartening like people were not idly sitting by as this kind of national scandal unfurled they were trying to do something about it and maybe they didn't fully succeed um but they did try and they did have some at least of minor interpersonal successes so that was that's heartening and i will say like i definitely see more black lives matter and like rainbow flags in gross point now when right. i go to visit than i ever did than i ever imagined possible growing up
0: it's it's, it's always with social justice movements there's you look back at it mm-hmm. and it's the unknown heroes the people that took a stand knowing maybe they could make a little dent but it's the build it's always the build. But you're absolutely right about mm-hmm. redlining has long-term effects everywhere still. Yeah, absolutely. Now, last question, and we always like this one. This is what we always love to do with our researchers. What materials did you look at at the Ruther mm-hmm. to develop this, this great article? And, and, other, and, of course, other archives as well. Mm-hmm. Just so if anybody wants to come and say, hey – this is some interesting materials. I need to look at it.
2: Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, the Ruthers Collections were definitely incredibly central to what I ultimately published and came up with. Um, and chiefly among those, like we were just talking about, there is a Gross Point Civil Rights Organizations record uh, that has the HRC. And there was also an open housing group that formed, I believe, in 1968. Um, so it houses those collections, which is really, really, really critical to me. Um, in terms of uncovering the point system, the ACLU of metropolitan Detroit records were useful, um, as was the anti-defamation league papers, Jewish community council papers. Um, yeah, I think that was it. And then people might be familiar with a book published in the 1970s called Race Against Race. That's about Gross Point. Um, and that's written by Kathy. Well, Kathy Grohn, Cosboom, el and the Ruther also has her papers. So I kind of cobbled together all of those things to, to tell this story. Excellent. Yeah.
0: Excellent. All right. So what's next for you? You're still, you were telling me that you're fifth year NYU. I am. Um, mm-hmm. what do you, what's, what's your dissertation? What are you working on? And will you be visiting us or more <laughs> visiting U of M?
2: <laughs> yes. Uh, Probably both of more, but yeah, so my dissertation focuses on LGBT community organizing um, in Metro Detroit in the 80s and 90s, predominantly. Um, And I've been focusing lately a lot on kind of hate crimes activism. Obviously, AIDS is a huge issue at that time. Um, And thinking about how people make a home in a place that's not often considered, you know, central like San Francisco or New York to queer life. Um, so that's kind of, that's what I'm doing now. Um, and I will be returning to the Ruther and the Bentley. Um, but yeah, so excited to kind of explore that. And certainly, although I'm dealing with a slightly different time period and different actors, like the role of the city, um, and suburbs in community building is crucial. So that work from gross point is still useful. Um, And, but back to gross point though, I am planning to create kind of a digital teaching tool using what I found uh, here primarily um, to to kind of help people make sense of the questions that I had growing up, which is like, what is going on here? You know, I can feel these boundaries, why do they exist? Um, And so hoping to kind of create an accessible way, more accessible than an academic article behind a paywall to kind of um, help folks in the community help students help activists today um make sense of of something that seems natural and really isn't so
0: that is excellent yeah thank you so much for joining us yeah um this was a great conversation troy learned a lot which we always (laughs) like but thank you so
2: much yeah happy to be here thanks again for having me
1: Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers are Dan Galadner and Troy Eller-English. The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. And of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan.
0: Goodbye, Dan. That was nice. You hit the points. Pun in, no pun intended that one, but you hit all the points needed to hit. Yes. So that was good. For the record, are we recording? Yeah, I thought so. State your name, please.
2: <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm Emma Monier. Um, I'm a fifth year PhD candidate in NYU's history department. See,
0: I'm not going to mess that up. Looking at it, I will, but it sounds yeah, I can do that. This will all be on bloopers as well at the end. Oh, okay, Troy, great. Troy loves putting how oh, badly I sound. Yeah, it's only about okay, me.
2: Okay, I'm safe. Not I'm you. Safe. Yeah, you're safe. Okay.
0: It's only to put me down. Put me in my place. Now this leads us to our interview with Emma Manier. Manier, Manier. Her article unearthed, unearth, unearthed. unearthed. <laughs> A little rusty. A little bit. This wall still stands today in Detroit, but now it's covered in murals about peace, race, and racial harmony. But for about over 70 years, it was a sign of housing discrimination and racial (laughs) discrimination. It was on a roll there, man. You were. I know. All right. (laughs) This wall... This wall stands
1: (laughs) This wall. (laughs) This wall. (laughs) Not not that wall, this wall. What wall? This wall. (laughs) Where wall?